Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Eyes, and welcome to the companion episode of Stages Conversation with leading lady Marina Pryor. In our first episode, she described her artistic life growing up and the audition that changed her life, scoring the lead role of Mabel in the 1983 production of The Pirates of Penzance, alongside John English, Simon Gallagher, David Atkins and June Bronhill. We launch into further story and reflection of a life in the theatre, working on iconic shows like Cats, Les Mis and The Phantom of the Opera in this next instalment of Stages, celebrating the magnificent career of a dynamic leading lady, Marina Pryor. Pulling on the leg warmers, the cats. Um, had you danced much before? <laughs> no, not really. I did ballet when I was a kid, but no, 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 no. Um, and so that was that was a whole new experience. And it was the first time I'd been in the ensemble, an ensemble. Uh, and in that, I just, I, I was, you know, 22 years old and I got to be, for the first time, I was sort of one of the gang. Um, I think the first two shows, going straight into being a leading lady, um, you're isolated from the the people that were my age were in the ensemble and, um, you know, I, I forged great friendships but you, you still were kept very sort of, you know, you, you had to get to hang with everybody. You didn't share a dressing room with everyone and all that sort of thing. So... Um, Doing cats, like being part of an ensemble, was such a joy, and it taught me so much about. It loosened me up physically, and taught me so much about uh, movement and uh, uh, just uh, uh, appreciating the physical aspect of theatre as well. And I just, um, I had a fabulous time during cats. This fantastic way to spend, you know, your early twenties in a big. A big gang, being part of a big gang. I hadn't felt like I was really part of the ensemble until Cats. And it was the first of those those mega musicals that yeah. were beginning to arrive in Australia from the Brits. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And heralded in a marvellous, you know, that marvellous thing. Sometimes people are disparaging about the mega musical, but, you know, what it did is it opened up the concept of going to musicals to the general public that otherwise would not go and, um, you know, that was a fabulous thing. It became the thing to go and see um, rather than a sort of uh, slightly more esoteric corner of the arts, you know, it became musicals, became 
everybody wanted to see cats. It was on the back of, you know, the marketing. It's the first time I'd seen that sort of marketing on the back of buses and enormous billboards over all over Sydney and, you know, it became the zeitgeist. Macintosh was brilliant in the way that he sold a show. And I remember Cats, you know, it was the first time that that big bump up in ticket pricing happened and you must come to Sydney, it will not leave Sydney. Yeah, yeah, Um, all that, which was, of course, not true. (laughs) Oh, then it toured the country in a tent. Yeah, exactly. And they still do it. You know, shows still do it. They still kind of say, oh, it's not moving, it's not moving. And we all sort of go, well, it will eventually, (laughs) you know. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant marketing, and uh, and he was—he's always Cameron from that time. I actually met Cameron backstage at Camelot when he was out casting Cats, and he came backstage and and met me, and and he has been such a great um, champion for me, and I'm really, really grateful to Cameron. He's been a a, a big force in my life. Now, yeah. is my research that good in that I, I discovered that you played the role of Cosette and also Fontaine, is that right? Yeah, I covered Fontaine, yes. Right, right. Did you get Thank to go you. on as Fontaine? Many, many times, Right. yeah. But, you know, um, gosh, I was so young and I hadn't really discovered my uh, my darker kind of chest resonance and I often think you know I, a few years later I kind of thought wish I could go back and do that again because now that's sort of part of my repertoire you know like everybody else sing dream to dream but um yeah I was so young but um yeah it was a very very exciting experience and a really moving I, I hadn't been in a show that was so uh had such an emotional connection and drew the cast together in that way. And a, a huge amount of that. One is the beautiful piece and the story, the great Victor Hugo story, but the other was um, Trevor Nunn's direction. And he also directed Cats, but um, working with him on Les Mis, he was, he was just phenomenal and uh, really united that cast. And that cast, that original cast is still connected and close, which is lovely. One of the nicest things about doing shows, you know, you have that family aspect and, and some shows are just special and that was a special one. Well, talk about a, you know, a rock star lineup of, of performers, you know, Philip Quast and Anthony Warlow and Simon Burke and Normie Rowe and Robin Arthur and... Deborah uh, Byrne. Uh, Deborah Byrne, of course, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jodie Gillies. Um, yes, it was... Uh, it was absolutely fantastic and we all knew sometimes every now and again you you get into a show where you know that it's special we knew it was special you could tell by the the tears on the faces of the audience every night you know it was obviously there's something it, it touches people's souls and that's that amazing thing that that live theater has the ability to do and great music has the ability to do and you know it was never lost on us as not as as an ensemble that it was a great it was a privilege to be part of that show people we took it really seriously to love another person is to see the face of god oh, it's me exactly. every time i see it, it. Yeah. the greatest yeah. final line of a show it's yeah. just so beautiful and that was the you know it, it never i mean even when you say it now i get a little goosebump it's just you know glorious glorious piece of theater that will be done for years and years and years and years to come which is just wonderful I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living I dreamed that love would never die I dreamed that God would be the tide 
of a downer of a show, though. Were you able to go home and go straight to bed? I mean, most shows, most performers tell me, oh, it's one o'clock by the time I get to bed. I've just got to, yeah, I'm, too, to- I'm too wide. I have to wind down. Oh, yeah, always. Always wound down. Often would go out, um, go out and have supper, have a glass of wine. We very rarely, yeah, we, it wasn't sort of, yeah, a lot of people, we'd go out. We'd go out. Yeah. HMS Pinafore, The Student Prince, The Merry Widow, Operetta is creeping into your repertoire. Yeah, yeah, also, yeah. is there ever any thought that you were going to go into opera as a I as think a that, yeah, it was something that I always toyed with when I was younger. And uh, because I was, you know, a classically trained singer. Um, and so I used to, there was quite a few years where I would straddle between should I be thinking about opera should I be thinking about opera but in retrospect I'm really really glad I stuck with music theatre you know um I don't have a big dramatic voice and uh I also love acting as much as I love singing and in opera the the acting will the singing will always have to take precedence over the acting and uh I really love the marriage of singing and acting you know, so it, it, it's. I'm glad that I'm glad that I kept going the way that I've gone. Yeah. Are you a superstitious in the theatre, Marina? Not at all. Not at all. There's none of that uh, whistling in the the wings, no. or no, no, no. I don't do it in case I upset older people. But of course, nowadays I'm the older people. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to worry about it, really. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I'm ritualistic. I tend to do the same things. I like a particular ritual, you know, like I like to do the breathing exercises. I like time, quiet time while I put my makeup on, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. I tend to, and I stand in the wings just by myself uh, to just listen to the audience and, you know, before I go on stage. I have little sort of things I repeat to myself or whatever. So I'm ritualistic, but I'm not superstitious. No, sometimes it's nice to play that you are, but no, I'm not. I'm not at all. No. Are, are the wings your favourite part of a theatre? Totally. They're yeah. exciting. They're, I love the light when it goes to blue. Um, there's such a sense of anticipation and it's like just before you go on, it's like this fabulous feeling of like I've got a secret and you guys don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be great. Like I love that sort of, uh, yeah, I love the I love the nervous energy of an opening night in the wings. I thrive on the. I don't mind the nerves. You know, I find them more exciting than kind of uh, terrifying. Um, yeah, I love it. It's my. It, it's mag, It's a magic. It's a magic space in the wings. Someone once described me uh, doing a big musical is like yeah. lead, leading a monastic lifestyle. You know, with eight shows a week, you've really got to protect yourself to yeah. deliver for the audience. How tiring is doing eight shows a week, and and what do you have to be mindful of? It depends on the show. It depends on the show. Some shows are utterly depleting, and. Uh, uh, for example, Fun Home, I found emotionally depleting. Uh, like really, uh, even though it was a short show, it really it wrung all of us out. And uh, but uh, other shows, you know, you kind of they they feed you. Um, I had the great joy of doing Hello Dolly with the production company, and that fed me. I was sort of exhilarated and energized at the end of. The show, but with all shows, I'm very. If I'm ever doing eight shows a week, I'm really mindful. I tend not to speak much during the day, which is difficult for me because I love a chat. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had much uh, vocal injury or physical injury through your career? Yeah, uh, not physical injury. When I was early, uh, earlier on, like during Cats, I was training. Actually, I, I worked with a new. Uh, an operatic singing teacher in Sydney who sort of was determined that I was going to go into opera and I was doing eight shows a week of Cats and then singing Puccini during the day and uh, really uh, waiting, weighing my voice down more than it naturally wanted to be weighed down and, yeah, I suffered um, vocal strain. But I've never had, 
I've never had anything too horrendous. I did, I burst a blood vessel a few years ago uh, by suppressing, I wasn't even singing at the time. I'd had a baby recently, about two months earlier, and I suppressed a sneeze in the middle of the night and completely uh, like turned one vocal cord completely red and burst a blood vessel, uh, which never quite resolved until a couple of years ago, I actually had uh, laser surgery to get rid of the the remaining sort of scar tissue, wow. which was pretty scary, um, but great to do because my voice just felt so fantastic afterwards that I'd been sort of working around this very slight, very slight um, kind of uh, injury that I'd sort of nursed for quite some time and getting rid of it was just revolutionary. I'd always been scared to do anything about it. Did motherhood change you much as a performer? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. In what way? Uh, Maybe braver, much more. Uh, I found it much easier to take risks. I've always liked taking risks. That's my happiest place is out of my comfort zone. Uh, and always, I, I've always loved doing things that um, I think because it comes from starting as an ingenue and everyone's saying, well, you, you know, you look pretty and you sing okay and, like, you're never going to, go further than that so I've always loved uh, challenging people's perceptions of what I can and can't do or should or shouldn't do um, but I but when I had children it was just yes it was a rev- revelation because I realized that the most important thing in the world and the epicenter of my world is my children and no matter what happens if I absolutely bomb in a show and I'm terrible tomorrow morning I'm still going to have that adoring little person loving me you know and needing me and because of that you yeah I lost I just lost a lot any fear of I stopped caring about what anyone thought and I think that's can be a really difficult thing a paralyzing thing for performers we we can tend to worry about other people's opinions of what we're doing and I think that can be magnified by social media as well. Oh, yes, um, yes. You know, and so and consequently it's some, social media is something I've taken a huge step back from because um, I just think it's healthier not to know what everyone's thinking and saying all the time. It actually doesn't mm. matter. And, um, yeah, so it was a, libera- a liberation having children, hugely so, hugely so, and it made it easy to make, it's made it easy to make decisions. Sometimes you have to make decisions when something might be some fabulous opportunity but you know you've got a kid doing year 12 or something like that it makes it easier to make those decisions yeah it's a great leveler it really it really is it really is I can never no none of my kids think of me as anything but mum and they're so unimpressed by what I do (laughs) 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 they tend to kind of all my eyes. If I'm rehearsing or singing at home, I get an eye roll. Or can you go and? Or they ask me to go and do it somewhere else. She's at it again. So, yeah, um, <laughs> but I don't mind it. I don't mind it because I think what it's taught me too is that I think before having children, you know, I was defined by what, what my, what by my career, and I think after having children, I was no longer defined by it, which gives you a great sort of. Uh, a, a way to be careless with your career, which is actually sort of helps it in a way. You're not gra- you're not grasping. You're not invested. No, I'm really not. I mean, I am. So much. In the moment, I am passionate and I care and it's, you know, I will give it 400%. But the minute I walk out the stage door, I don't think about it. Hmm. I don't live it. I don't live it. No, it's your job. It's my job and it's a marvellous job. I'm not married to it. I read that um, as a young performer, you you really doubted yourself up until about mm. Phantom. I did, yeah. yeah. Why yeah. was that? Um, I think, you know, uh, look, a whole lot of different things. I think uh, going, depending, going into different shows and encountering different people, uh, you know, I was very... Uh, you know, I came in, bang, into a leading role. Uh, and so there was 
quite a few people who were uh, particularly other females, you know, who tended to be who the hell, who she thinks she is. Um, and so there was a bit of, you know, a bit of that tall poppy kind of, like, you know, well, she hasn't proved it. There was a sense of I hadn't proven myself, yes. which I felt very keenly. And so it was that thing of like being beholden to other people's assessments of you or opinions of you or, uh, you know, I'd get a bad review and I'd re- I'd believe every word of it and I'd get a good review and it couldn't have been true, you know. <laughs> it's all that sort of. And I don't know if it's actually just the you're going through your 20s, like, you know, your early 20s, mid-20s, where you're just, you're just trying to navigate your way through and find out who you are and all that sort of thing. So um, I think, yeah, I think something happened when I kind of got closer to 30 where I just went, no, I, I, I think I, know, I just sort of I gained enough confidence in myself as a person not to be so invested in what, other people were thinking and saying. Yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn, I think, whether you're a performer or not. Absolutely. It's crippling. Yeah. It can be absolutely a, a crippling, crippling thing. To, and I see it in young performers. They're so concerned about what other people are saying and thinking uh, that in turn, and I know what I did, even vocally or dramatically, I tended to judge everything I did before it even got out of my mouth, you know. I was self-critiquing constantly and worrying that it wasn't good enough or it wasn't this enough and I wasn't like her and I wasn't like her and I think I learnt it was all right to just be like me and, you know. I know Dolly Parton said, find out who you are and then just do that really well. (laughs) Stop trying to be someone else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't compare yourself to anyone else. Compare yourself to you. No. Well, uh, what um, Theodore Roosevelt said, it's the greatest thing ever. The comparison is the thief of joy. And it is, yeah. you know. Yeah. What's your dressing room look like? How do you set it up? Um, it's, it has photos all over it of my family. Um, it has flowers. It has um, a very nice... Um, lace kind of or Indian silk placemat, crystal little bowls where I put all my makeup. It's very, it's very uh, particular. And then it gets incredibly messy. (laughs) 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 But it starts out looking absolutely fabulous. Gosh, it's got so dark here. I'm in Melbourne and it's just like, can you see how dark it's Yes, it has. Somebody turned the lights on for a minute and and off again. Can you turn the lights on? Ah, there we go. There we go. They've got the lights. Yes, we've we've got lights. Yeah, because I guess um, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I guess sometimes um, you're there for the beginning of the show, and then you don't. You return briefly at interval, and then pack up. Yeah, right? yeah, it depends. I mean, it depends. I when I did Sound of Music, I played the Baroness, who gets dumped by the captain at the beginning of Act Two. <laughs> so I had all of Act Two off, and my dressing room became incredibly important you know, incredibly important. It's true. Whereas um, some shows, yeah, you're in there less. But it's sort of there's something about I like to make it a home away from home. And I learned that from June Bronhill. She always, her dressing room was immaculate um, and she would always have nice lamps and sort of, you know, all sorts of lovely cushions. And so I tend to do that. I tend to do that in a dressing room. You spend so much time there. You know, in between shows on matinee days, it's your it's your little apartment, it's your little escape. So, you know, yeah. it, I I always like to make it like an oasis. Reg Livermore told me that he used to knit during Jesus Christ what? Superstar. Simon what? Simon Gallagher told me that he taught himself the computer during yes. My Fair Lady. Yeah, so yes. there's always yeah. a project that you can accomplish. Yeah, well, during when I was when I was dumped as the Baroness in. Um, for Act Two, I started making jewellery. I used to make earrings and necklaces, and like you know, watch some YouTube videos. And I watched, and I also watched an entire the entire series of Mad Men um, during good stuff. Sound. Yeah, great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I like I like my little hay. I like it. I love being in my dressing room. Fish got a Love one man till I die. I love, love that man of 
uh, Showboat. You got to work with the great Hell Prince. Yeah. Yeah, and and also yes. Yes. A, a wonderful role for an actor as Magnolia. You've got an age from sixteen. I think at the end of the show, she's forty yeah. something. Yeah. How do you prepare a role like that? I know she's like sixty five. Right. Oh, I loved it. Um, and I had had the joy of working with Hell earlier in Phantom, so I already knew him. Yep. Uh, and he. I mean, he's, he was a superb man. So as verbose and poetic and sort of uh, flowing in language as Trevor Nunn was, Hell was the complete opposite. He was completely succinct, so so very American to the English, you know. Uh, he was so succinct and particular and precise and economical and always Spot on, spot on. Um, he was wonderful. And, yeah, I, like so, yeah, she was six. She went from 16 to 65. Um, and such an epic show and such an important, important show historically. And, uh, yes, it was, it was actually a really joyous experience. Yes. The first show I ever played after becoming a mum, my daughter was only a little baby, about one at the time. Oh, great. Then Magnolia has Kim, isn't it, the daughter in exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, yes, and I that was the first time I worked, worked with, although I already knew her, it's the first time I worked with Nancy Hayes. She played my mother and she has been a, an incredible uh, mentor to me and such a supporting and warm and special lady. I'm, I'm, I have a very strong bond with Nance. I love her yeah. very much. No, pe- no people like no people like show people. Yeah, she. I tell you <laughs> what, she's, she's class personified. Yeah, Marina, how important is costume in to you in creating a performance? Very, it, it very. completes you, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And wigs, wigs are everything, you know. Um, and uh, I think. Uh, in things like doing Showboat, for example, or even the first time I did Guys and Dolls, I found because I had sort of very distinctive curly hair that was very phantom-esque, I always, uh, particularly as I moved into more character roles and, and roles that were sort of against type, um, wigs have always been really, really important to me. I always like to I like to be blonde or red and straight or short or, you know, not nothing like I look like you know um and it, it does it completes you it helps you um yeah I, I i love that sort of dress up aspect although there is one thing um my husband and i who's also an actor we always laugh about the fact that um our dread is to be invited to fancy dress parties where <laughs> normal normal people you know think isn't it hilarious we're going to put on a costume and i think oh god i live in a costume i don't need to i don't find it like hilarious <laughs> dress up i've got this real kind of you know angst about like please don't invite me to a fancy dress party i hate them yeah um <laughs> The Witches of Eastwick in 2002, is that the first time that you're sort of stepping away from the roles that you've been cast and and trying out a more character-based role? Yeah, well, as a, prior to that was the production company where I did Miss Adelaide. That was the right. very first one. That was Roger Hodgman who actually broke the mould for me. But this was the first commercial, big commercial one, yes. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, it was... It was so much fun. I mean, it was a, it's a flawed, flawed production. It's a shame. So much about it is so fantastic. But it it was, I think, even in um, London too, it was never as successful, I think, as they hoped. Um, but it was a joy. And we had an amazing cast. And we had Geraldine, who was incredible. We had Tony Sheldon, uh, Pippa Grandison, and, of course, Paul McDermott. Uh, who played uh, the devil, and uh, that was his first foray, I think, and only foray into music theatre. But you know, he he was terrific, so so funny, so clever, and so musical. Did you have a moment where you you got cold feet and you wanted to leave? I did. Yes. Gosh, yes. you do know a lot about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, I was in rehearsal, and every time. Just about every show I've ever done, 
when I get to week three, uh, I usually week day one, week one, everything's fabulous and hilarious and this is going to be fantastic. Week two is, wow, I'm really I'm coming up with so many ideas. This is great. It's all flowing. And week three, I am notorious, I have learned now, in week three, I go into a complete spiral of self-doubt and I think everything I come up with is terrible and I'm completely miscast. And, I, yeah, I had a real fear. I just thought I can't do this. And I, I got my agent, Mark Gogol, to come and meet me and I said to him, you have to get me out of this. I can't do it. I'm terrible. I'm, it's not funny. It's not clever. It's not. It's just terrible. I'm, I'm letting everyone down. And I remember because he came and picked me up at rehearsal and we sat in a McDonald's car park. He <laughs> 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 talked me off the ledge. And, you know, then I pressed through and it was, you know, it was really good for me personally. You know, it was a really great role for me and it ended up being a fantastic experience. So, but I've learned now to be aware of week three because always week three i i come up against a brick wall i can i can see in the in the film version of marina with the fabulous scene in the car park and it's raining and (laughs) scene with mark you can do it you can do it no i can't and it really was genuinely genuinely no i really can't mark i can't do this i've bitten off more than i can chew I can't do it. Yeah, perhaps that's because you you contributed to because you were moving into new territory. You're playing a character yeah. role. You're playing comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was all of those things. And I just thought I'm out of my comfort zone. And now I've, you know, learned that, uh, you know, the best place to be is out of your comfort zone. It is the best place to be. And it's where all the best work comes out of. So, so sometimes now I think if I'm doing something and it just feels really comfortable, I think, well... this is a problem (laughs) you know I need to get out of that you need to get out of that comfort zone to create good work I think how did you cope with the flying loved it yeah loved it yeah although we did get stuck on the first I think it was the first preview we are we all three of us Pippa Grandison and Angela Tui and myself ascended into above the princess theater right up into the circle level and uh, then the mechanism got stuck and we were hanging there for the whole of interval, um, which was very interesting. <laughs> well, the audience were there. Yes. Yeah, we were doing, We were chatting. I think I started singing There's No Business Like Show Business at one point, you know, getting a sing-along happening. It was just, it was ridiculous. Well, there's another great scene for the film. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you still audition? Have to audition or are you in the glorious spot of being offered roles now? No, no, no. Um, uh, Look, sometimes, sometimes I am offered roles, I have to say. Sometimes I'm asked to do something. Uh, But, uh, for example, 9 to 5, which is the last sort of commercial musical that I was going to do, supposing, supposed to do, uh, I I did a really, oh, gosh, it was like a a two-and-a-half-hour audition audition. for that, which then has to, a lot of the time, the time you audition, supposedly, you know, you get videoed and they send it to the creatives, the ultimate creatives overseas. Um, so I don't mind auditioning though. It's always nice to be offered something, but I'm very happy to audition because then I feel like I, uh, you know, I have um, deserved deserved to get the role on yeah on merit. merit. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's good to show people stuff that they don't expect that you can do. A lot of the time, you know, they they just think of you in one particular way. And so sometimes I find it's really valuable to audition to say, hey, look, I can also do this and you may not have seen me do that. So I don't mind it. I quite, and I'm weird in that I quite enjoy auditions. I kind of. Well, you are weird. Yeah, I know. I know. I do. I do like them. I find them, if as long as they're run in a sort of benevolent room, <laughs> you know. Some, you know. But generally, I, uh, I really enjoy them. What's your advice to the novice performer then, who uh, to uh, execute a really good audition? What would you suggest? Preparation, preparation, preparation. Know the material 
so you can do it in your sleep backwards know every line have the accent down have every note down and have uh you know you must have sung the song that you're auditioning with you know at least 30 times before you walk in preparation i think the more prepared you are the more familiar you are with the material then you know you're then free to play and inhabit it you know i would say that's crucial everything preparation learn your lines yeah. <laughs> don't bump into the furniture yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> your your career uh, reinvention or the or the continual stages that you develop have extended into straight acting plays mm. which is, yeah. is is fantastic what do you love about being away from an orchestra and being able to just navigate a text oh. You know, it's such a different, look, in some ways, the truth, and I'm so adamant about this, some straight actors will be rather mm, disparaging about musical theatre actors in that they, they're not real actors. Mm -hmm. And I maintain that you must be as good, if not better, to be able to act and sing and dance and tell the truth through all of that. But um, there is... There is a, a, you know, a freedom in that you don't have to, you don't have those other things to worry about. You're not worrying about singing. You're not worrying about the underscore starting at the right time. You're not worrying about executing the step at the right time. You're just fully immersed in the play and there is a freedom and ability to pull things about and play, which you may not have if you've got 30, 30 people in an orchestra, you know, having to stay with you and you stay with them or sing a duet with someone. So there's that element of play and freedom. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love I love doing plays. Probably the most joyous experience, one of the most joyous experiences was recently doing um, Hay Fever at Melbourne Theatre Company uh, playing Judith Bliss and it was just, you know, such a highlight and, you know, it was, yeah, the, the, there's... Yeah, there's less stress in a way when you don't have you're not worrying about the music and the singing and the dancing and you know yeah, yeah. loved it and, loved, and with, loved it. whether you're doing Noel Coward or Moliere or a fast like mm -hmm. Noises Off there are still yeah. rhythms in the text which have to be observed just like navigating a musical score absolutely and particularly as you say Moliere which is written you know in couplet form so yes mm -hmm. Very much so. There is there is a musicality, but I think that a lot of music theatre uh, performers are good with script and with accent because we have a musical ear, so we can hear we can hear the lilt and the nuance of the language, and we can hear we can hear the accent. Most singers are pretty good at, at executing an accent. Yeah, I um I think it stands you in in good stead to be musical to then understand the music in great writing, especially, as you say, in Moliere or, or Noel Coward, where there, there is a musicality and a beauty in the writing and it's good. We, I think musical people have an inherent sense of that. I hear him before I go to sleep and focus on the day that's been. I realise he's there about my man They think he's lost on some horizon And suddenly I find myself listening to a man I've never known before Telling me about the sea All his love till eternity Tell me about prior engagement. Oh my god, um, <laughs> that was a restaurant. 
that uh, myself and my ex-husband and Dale Burridge and uh, his partner um, opened up in 1991 to about 1994 or five in Chapel Street um, in Paran, and it was a supper club, um, and we had the likes of Nancy Hayes and. Um, Tony Lamond and whoever was whoever was in town, like coming in and performing and singing, and uh, it, we sort of created this sort of place that we would like to go, like a real supper club that we would like to go to after a show, and um, yeah, it was it was look, it was fantastic for a couple of years, and then the last couple of years, everybody went off and did shows and toured, and there was no one left really holding the baby, you know, and. You know, next time I think I'll just pour a bucket of money over a cliff. <laughs> but did it have echoes of, of like the Green Man, you know, the, the venues of your youth? Uh, perhaps it did. Did that perhaps inspire you? I did. Well, not consciously, but perhaps it did. But we had these, you know, we had more sort of lamps on the tables and kind of, you know, it was more a, a supper club with fine fine food and wine and, and a beautiful little stage. You know, we got the sound and lighting were done by the phantom crew and you know which was very lucky for us at the time it was during phantom when we were still you know we were performing phantom every night i mean mad totally mad but i i, I don't regret it it was a wonderful experience yeah. do you enjoy being in the studio recording yeah i mean i think you've done about eight albums haven't you um a few i look i love it i love being in the studio it's a very 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 different thing though I have to say I get more uptight and nervous in a studio than I do on stage because I'm just purely listening to the sound and critiquing the sound as I sing uh, and I'm much harsher on myself I think when you're sitting in a theater and you're watching a complete performance you're not honing in just on every single note um, so the the perfectionism that is required in a studio can be quite daunting but when you when you achieve it and you're happy with it it's fantastic yeah. I'm not often happy with it though I have to say are you able to to listen to your recordings and enjoy no, no. rarely rarely uh some but rarely I I I get too uh I'm just too critical I just hear everything wrong rather than everything Right. There is an album I did a few years ago called Both Sides Now, which was... Um, Joni Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. It was a, that song and a lot of the songs I grew up singing. So it's like a pop, folk, green man days. And that album, funnily enough, is the one I'm probably proudest of and it's a completely different genre. But um, that's the one that I don't have so much difficulty listening to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, I, don't, I must admit, no, my albums are not played in this house. My kids would <laughs> just, they would just, just crucify me if, if I did. What genres of music do you enjoy that you listen to to wind down or relax? Joni Mitchell, yeah. um, Celtic music, uh, Lady Gaga, um, Ella Fitzgerald, um, you know, lovely old, older sort of classical singers like Yussi Bueling, the beautiful tenor, and um, yeah. yeah, a very, very eclectic taste in music. And I never listen to music theatre ever. Wow. Only when I'm learning something or need, I need to, hmm. but or you know, specifically I'm learning, looking for material or whatever. And I don't know why, but it just, I think when I listen to it, I tense up. I just think, I, I feel like I'm on. Or something. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I find it difficult to actually listen to it for enjoyment's sake. I love going to the theatre and watching my colleagues perform, and love hearing them and seeing them. But at home, it's not something that relaxes me. Funnily, enough. I listen to a lot of classical music. Yeah, a lot of jazz, supper clubby sort of French pop. I like like French nice. music. Yeah. Unusual types of music. Eclectic. Yeah. Christmas every year would seem to demand in Australia several ingredients, plum pudding, Santa Claus, but also Marina Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> How 
How many years have you been in uh, Carol's by Candlelight? 2000 and, yeah, no. Um, how many years? Probably 30. Wow. So More? obviously Christmas More. is a special 30, 30 time. time. Very special time. I love doing carols. Um, I, I just love the spirit. It, you know, it reminds me of it reminds me of family and home and sort of simple pleasures. There's something I'm very sentimental about Christmas, and my house at Christmas time is just covered in uh, Christmas things and those little European sort of villages and things. You know that you know, like they're everywhere. You can't move in here because of, for, for Christmas. So yeah, I lo- I love it, and I love I love doing it. I think because I'm a Melbourne girl, the Maya Music Bowl holds memories for me I went there when I was a kid to see people and I used to go and see carols and sit on a picnic blanket and dream about singing there one day so it's just got a it's a sentiment thing that I just I love carols it's a very Melbourne thing to do as much as the grand final <laughs> Who, who's going to uh, yeah. win this Saturday do you think oh, Melbourne <laughs> Melbourne Melbourne definitely. you a Melbourne supporter or or just because no. you're from Melbourne no because I'm from Melbourne I- I, I really I like both teams. I'm thrilled for both teams. No, I'm St Kilda, but um, but uh, a good friend, David Hobson, who we're, we're working together and have been for the last few years, is so passionate about Melbourne. It is actually his religion. So uh, most of his friends are just kind of, you know, indulging him, and we're all going for Melbourne, just you know, for his sake. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's go the red and the blue. I mean, by the time this this uh, conversation is released, well, the, okay. the grand final will be over. So it'll be interesting for, for listeners. To Hopefully, it was what the, the D. prediction was the D. Yeah, yeah. Now, are there any roles that you still covet, Marina? Oh yeah, um, Mrs. Lovett in Queen oh, yeah. Todd. Great. Uh, the witch in Into the Woods. Um. Uh, oh, I can't even think. There's so like yes, there's lots. There's lots. There's lots of um, roles that I would like to play. Oh, there's there's lots. I often see things and think, oh, I'd love to have a go at that. I'd love to do some more Nock Howard. I just adored doing Nock Howard. Um, I'd love to do some Oscar Wilde. Um, yeah, but those those would be the two. Like Mrs. Lovett. I think everybody wants to play Mrs. Lovett, don't they? Most people. Such a great role. Such a great role. <laughs> and, then, you know, the, the different types of people that can play it and do it so well. You think of all of the Australian Mrs Lovitz that we've had, oh. you know, Nancy Hayes, Gay McFarlane, Geraldine Turner, Caroline O'Connor, Gina Riley. Exactly. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, Antoinette Halloran. And look yes. at the differences in those. Like if you, if you compare Geraldine to Nancy to Antoinette to, you know, they're all, to Caroline, they are all so completely different and yet so completely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the beauty of a great role. You know, you can imbue it with your own stuff to a degree and, uh, yeah, yes, I would dearly love to do um, Mrs Lovett. Well, let's hope there's someone out there listening who can offer you a little priest. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> At some point. Yes. Marina Pryor, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been wonderful. Uh, thank you. It's such a joy to be able to actually just sit and chat showbiz. And uh, I'm a great admirer of your podcasts too. So, you know, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Marina is a delight and it was a great joy to capture her story in this two-part episode of Stages. Fingers crossed that we can all return to live performance ASAP and hopefully have the chance to see Marina on stage once again in concert performance or in a musical like 9 to 5. 
Thanks to the team at Mark Gogol Enterprises for coordinating the chat today. And a reminder that all of the music featured in the two episodes can be found from your good music stores, online or off. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. And don't forget to follow us on our socials, Facebook and Instagram. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. Tears and fears and feeling proud To say I love you right out loud Dreams on schemes and circus crowds I've looked at life that way But now old friends are acting strange They shake their heads